listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm here, John Wright, you're here. I am. We're here, and that means it's a Q&A episode. And actually, it's a special Q&A episode, isn't it? It is. It's a, well... I've been sort of writing it down in my to-do list as a redo. Is that, that a, is that too, is that? No, it's exactly what it is. I guess it's a month ago now. We had Josie's question. Right. And it's a 15-year-old who called us and asked about why people aren't freaking out more about climate change. Right. And we're going to play her question again in just a minute. Um, and I, I felt like I did, I, I didn't feel like we did a great job with it. We tried. It was like a swing and a miss for us, but we we posted it anyway, thinking that perhaps our, you know, our sort of struggle would be existentially interesting to people. And it was, but in a really negative way. I got all these I got all these messages from people saying, that was terrible. So you got some bad feedback from that. Oh, I did. I did. You know, um, you know, one of our former guests, Peter Montoya, mm-hmm. um, I, I know he listens to the show and he, he wrote to me, he said like, that was horrible. He's like, get an expert, talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Do you, you, that was, you know, he was really like pissed off and he was not alone. He was not well, alone. But isn't there. Okay. I mean, and, and maybe I'm too defensive, but like, I'm thinking to myself, this is a hard question and we are not experts. That's the conceit of the show. We're answering as proxy for an audience that really is trying to figure this stuff out in real time. Now, you so, know what? We are ex- like, that's the thing. Like, I, like, I'm supposed to be an expert, not an expert <laughs> in all the things that we talk about. Right. But I'm supposed to be an expert at approaching things from a humanist, a positive uh, let's make the most of this life. Let's build loving relationships perspective. And was it that? Was it that aspect that you think you didn't nail? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that you know you're facing up to a question that's that's really an important one, especially for a lot of younger people, and it's it's almost a pastoral care question. So it's just like, hey, you know, like what do I do when I get upset? Right. You know. Right. And 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 you. If you, if you don't have a good answer for that, I mean, you might not you might not have every specific thing they should do, but you're like, well, you know, you should you should lean on your on your conflict resolution skills, you know, or like, yeah. you know, there's a lot to be learned about, you know, healthy eating, and and so you ought to at least be able to steer people in a general direction that gives them some hope or some thing to do. Okay, and that's what we failed at. Yeah, I feel like we did. And, and okay. And so I've I've actually spent the better, not the better part, but a lot of the last few weeks trying to educate myself and 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 thinking on this issue and 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 wrestling with it and, and talking to other people about it so that I could be a better answerer of 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 Josie's question. Okay. I love that. I love that. But before we get to that. Okay. First of all, you know, of all the people I heard from, I did not hear, hear from, from Josie. Josie. <laughs> no, no. So Josie, if you're out there, we're going to try to do better this time. But like, you got to be in touch, girl. You know who I did hear from, though? Mm. My parents. Um, not that they listen to the show. I was going to say, do, do they listen? 
No, but they talk to a lot of people who do listen. Ah. And the other day, they were somewhere in the South. My dad was talking somewhere at some church. And an old family friend of ours, um, who I grew up with, Norman Carlson, showed up. He drove like six hours to see my parents because like, he's like practically family with us, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in the course of his conversation with my mom, he, he said, hey, you know, I, I, I support Humanize Me through Patreon. But, um, but I guess because I used my official name, which is William, instead of my sort of the nickname that he goes by is Norman. He said, you know, Bart didn't acknowledge it as if he knew who I was. And, and, and my mom was like, that's terrible, Bart. You know, and I was like, that is terrible. Um, so I'm super excited that Norman Carlson listens to the show and I'm hoping he's listening to this episode because I want him to know I'm super excited and yeah. looking forward to looking forward to an email exchange in the future and, and reconnecting. But, um, but That's yeah, awesome. I mean, you know, a lot of the people that are with us on, on Patreon, um, there's some, there's some actual personal connection. That's so nice. And it means a lot. And, and it means a lot that we get to do the show. And did, did you post the Ryan Meeks episode yet? Yeah. That's been up for about a week. Okay. Because, I mean, I think it's a kind of a cool episode, but I also like the, in the opening to that episode, I think I got a little bit emotional about how much, how grateful I am to the Patreon supporters and how I feel like together we're doing a good thing and making a difference in people's lives in a good way. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you're a Patreon person, even if you don't want to listen to Ryan Meeks and me talk about music, um, you should listen to the first five minutes of that episode because that's me talking about how much, how much we genuinely appreciate, and and how mu- and, and genuinely are excited about having you on the team. Yeah. All right. So, so the other thing I want to say before we get into the question is, I know we talked about posting the Humanist House meeting notes and recordings and stuff so that people yeah, we, should have, we should have a little update on that because yeah. that, that was a few weeks ago we talked about it and people we had a little poll and people seemed excited about it so yeah and and we and we've had i mean we've had four of those meetings at, and how are they going they're amazing we had one yesterday and it was one of my favorite experiences of the week um and it and and i was inspired like I, I actually came away from it feeling like I was operating at a higher level of awareness and love and gratitude and focus than before wow. I went into it. Yeah. That's so good. And it's exciting because that it, it means it's working. Yeah. And not just working. Like, it's not like this thing. It's funny. Marty, Marty was talking to one of our friends who comes to it and she, Ryan, his wife, Carrie, and, and, and she was saying, she was contrasting it with the potlucks that we will still do once in a while, but we used to do all the time. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, those were something that I was doing for other people, but they, they didn't do anything for me. Um, so it was like, a, like I wasn't taking care of myself. And because it, it was funny because yesterday's um, meeting was about sort of taking care of yourself and the relationship that it has that has to taking care of other people. Right. Um, 
And uh, she said, I wasn't taking care of myself. But she said, this, the work that I put into this, like, it's not, I'm glad it's good for other people, but it's really good for me too. Very cool. Yeah. So it's very cool. So anyway, those, we'll have, we'll have the first one of those. It's, it's up now. By the time anyone's hearing this, it's up. Yes. Okay. Patreon. Beautiful. And that's on Patreon too? Yeah, it's on Patreon, but it's uh, public. So anyone can go to that. Uh, at least for now, you can go to that first one. Okay. And listen all the way through. You know, you can, you can listen to the various things and, and read what, what's there. So Good. yeah. Good. Yeah, because I mean, th- my, my goal is to get everybody addicted to them and f- having them think that they're really valuable and then we'll throw them behind a paywall and make millions. Right, yeah, it'll be at least $100 a piece. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll never happen and we would never <laughs> want it to, but um, they're up, so there you go. Okay, so, okay, so you ready to have another go at the question? Sure am, let's go. Hey, Bart, I'm Josie. I just turned 15, and I'm a big fan of your podcast. Okay, so I have this really great science teacher who's one of my favorite teachers ever, and he's really passionate about a lot of things and will sometimes sort of go on long trains of thought during class. One of the things he comes back to is basically how the well-being of Earth is spiraling downhill and we will all be in serious environmental trouble in the near future, what with the spiking population and climate change. And then once he talks about this, he sort of moves back to whatever lesson we're doing, you know, Newton's third law or whatever. And then I sort of can't really focus the rest of the class because I keep going back to like, wow, we are in serious trouble. Everyone in the world is in serious trouble. Why isn't this everyone's first concern at the moment? Why aren't we all trying to fix this? Is it because it's such a great truth that no one wants to actually acknowledge it. So I guess my main question is, how do we cope with this really high probability that life on Earth may be really, really miserable for us in the near future? Okay, thank you. Hey, Bart, this is Josie again. I hope my last message went through, and I just want to clarify what I said. I know everybody can't just drop everything and go buy a Tesla, but I just still don't understand how growing population and climate change and stuff like that aren't talked about more often. Okay, thank you. Okay, so that was Josie's question, and you think you have a better answer? At least a more helpful answer. Yeah. I mean, I think that what, what I realized is, is that there were kind of two questions in there. Um, the one question is, how do we cope? And I'm just going to put that one to the side for a minute. Because I feel like the question she asked at the beginning and then she came back to when she, when she called the second time was, why isn't everybody focused on this? Like, this is a right. huge thing. Why isn't everybody focused on it? Why isn't this a constant conversation topic? Right. Why aren't we freaking out more and why aren't we doing more? Yeah. Why aren't our policymakers doing all this stuff? You know, why? why? It's funny because, you know, uh, uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. um, introduced that thing called the the New Green Deal or the Green New Deal. Yeah. And 
there, there was actually, I was listening to the New York Times has this podcast called The Daily. It's like a 20 minute reflection on the news. And they had this episode about the Green New Deal in which the, the kind of the upshot of it was, is that there's, it, it, it was a non-binding resolution you know, asks for like, it's like a liberal laundry list of everything liberals have always wanted. And, uh, but it ties it all together around this focus on climate change. Uh And, um, and she talked about how it got introduced and then how the Republicans figured out that they could use it to like bludgeon Democrats over the head. And so for a while there, the Democrats were like distancing themselves from it. But then, um, then this old line Democratic congressman says, listen, for better or worse, at least now we're talking about climate change. It's the first time right. we've had a, a meaningful conversation about climate change in these chambers. And, and, and the commentators were saying, the guy who raised the issue has never talked about climate change himself. <laughs> I think it was Chuck Schumer. Um, okay. And they're like, it's not his issue. He's an old, he's, he's an old line guy. But like the, the, that they had all figured out that the voters that they're going to need in the next 20 years are all focused on this issue like Josie mm. and that it's, you know, but, but it, but the, the, the upshot of the episode was that in the cycle of politics where everything is about what's going to get me elected in two years, what's going to let me get me, get me elected next year, that, that climate change and all of this stuff just never rises to the top because it's always something that you can kick down the road. I think that's right. And it, and it's interesting because, I mean, if you were to ask Americans, what are the factors going into their next vote in the next presidential election? Certainly climate change would be on very few people's top five or top 10 list. You know, I don't I don't think that that many people are going to they're going to have economic concerns. They're going to care about what the country does about immigration, you know, but climate change is not one of those things that rises to the top of their lists. And there is a reason for this. There is a reason for this, and that is that that we are as human beings very like very hardwired to be concerned about the immediate problems that face us right now. And to use, in order to solve those problems, to use information that we gleaned from past experiences. So we, we sort of live in the present. And I'm not talking about emotionally. I know emotionally we worry about the past and we think about the future. But in terms of, in terms of our most urgent behaviors, it's all present oriented. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and, and when we think about the future at all, we have a strong tendency to think about the future as though it will be largely like the present. We, we, it's, it, these are we, these cognitive biases that we have cause it's they're like shortcuts that our brain uses because we can't actually reason out everything that's going on around us all the time. So there are some things where we use heuristics or what they call shortcuts, cognitive shortcuts, where like you look at a chair and you don't test out whether it'll hold your weight. You you size it up by the shape and stuff like, yeah, it's a chair. Chairs generally hold people's weight. In the past, I've sat on chairs. None of them have collapsed um, or one of them collapsed and that was a total oddity. So like, I'm going to sit on that chair. I'm not going to test it out. Right. So that whole line of reasoning that you just sort of spelled out, we never actually are even aware of 
that line of reasoning, but what you're saying is the brain does it anyway. Yeah. And so we're just, we're very, we're very prone to think about just what's happening right now or to the degree that we're thinking about the future, assuming that the future will be much like the present and that what's working for us now will work for us in the future. Yeah. 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 And what's more is, is that until about 300 years ago, I mean, we, we humans like with our reasoning and abstract thought cap capability have probably been around for like 50 to 100 million years. But until like the last 300 or 400 years, we haven't had any way to really look into the future and predict anything changing. Change has always caught us off guard because we didn't even know what the weather would, you know, like the idea of a weather forecast. I, I was funny. I was at the Cincinnati Observatory with my folks a couple of days ago and they were, sh- you know, it's this ancient, not ancient, but it's, it's like they've got like telescopes from the 1830s and or 1840s and it's all mechanically driven. And they were talking about how when the telegraph came was the first time it was a guy in Cincinnati who started telegraphing people in cities all over the country and saying, what's your weather like right now? And then the next day, what's your weather like? And as, as they would compare notes, you go like, huh, the weather in Kansas City, whatever it is in Kansas City, the next day, it's kind of like that here and started to make meteorolog- meteorological predictions. That's, that's really new. Right. So, so we couldn't even predict next week, let alone, you know, chart these long epochs of history and sort of go like, well, you know, there was a, you know, something happened, you know, 500 years ago and that comes around every 500 years. Oh, I think there'll be a comet coming. Like that was completely unknown. Well, and like you said, it kind of relied on technology, like some new technology too. Yeah. To make that change. So, so one of the reasons that one, one of the things I would say to Josie is, you know, he said like, why are we not focused on this? I mean, my science teacher just told us like population growth and, and, and climate change and all these things, like they're sure to bring calamities upon us. And, And what I would say is Josie, our brains are not very well designed to modify our present behavior on the basis of future eventualities. We, we're just, we haven't been a future oriented species for very long. Mm. So that's, that, that's, that's one thing. Now, now the truth of the matter is you go like, yeah, but we do have science now and we know some things are happening. We can see, we, we, we see th- things happening now and we know that they're related to our behavior. Right? Yeah. And what I would say is yes, now we do. And it turns out that now we're facing, I think, two kinds of future risks. Um, and and, and I, would ca- I would call one of these kind of risks an experiential risk and the other an existential risk. Um, the experiential risk is that there's a very real possibility that either we ourselves 20 years from now or 50 years from now are going to experience much more dire circumstances than we're, than we're experiencing right now. 
or, or that our children will, or, or our grandchildren, that, that, that things could get really bad out there. Like, sort of like if you're an economic forecaster and you said, hey, I think something like the Great Depression is just around the corner and there's going to be massive unemployment and people are going to be, you know, living at a much more higher level of poverty and that's going to create healthcare crises. And you, you, you say, are you saying that, that we're all going to die? Oh, no. We're not all going to die. We're all going to, you know, some of us are going to die and the rest of us are going to suffer. That's one kind of risk that a lot of people are worried about right now. Mm -hmm. the, the, almost like, I mean, I lived in LA for three years and you're, you, you know, what you're told is, is that there's a really bad earthquake in that part of the world along the San Andreas fault about every hundred, 150 years. And it's been more than a hundred years since the last one. Like the big one is coming and nobody says, and when the big one comes, everyone in Southern California will die instantaneously. That's not the fear. Right? Not at all. No, people are worried about the, the fallout that they'll actually live through. Yeah. That it's going to be horrible. And that, you know, it's going to be this, you know, like, like apocalyptic post-apocalyptic movie scene where there's fires everywhere and people are wandering around and there's sirens and the police aren't coming and there's no water there, all, all of that stuff. So, so yeah. th that's, that's people who have an, ex th th there's an experiential risk, a risk of a bad experience. And then there's this other kind of risk that is an existential risk. Um, that is what would happen if there was a nuclear war where everybody launched their, their stuff at once and all of human life on the earth was wiped out in one day. Or if, if, if a supernova in space exploded close to us and sent all these gamma rays in our direction and just incinerated the possibility of life on earth all at once. We were just irradiated to death. Mm -hmm. Or if uh, a pandemic flu, you know, swept the earth and, and there was nothing that could stop it. Or, or if AI, you know, like the Terminator movies, like if the machines all of a sudden turned against us and we were unable to, they, they, because they're rapidly expanding intelligence, they were ahead of every strategy that we used against them. And there was no John Connor and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger did not keep coming back and saving us um, that, that, that the machines would take over and that human life would be extinguished. Those are existential threats. Um, and in both cases, you know, those are threats that, that we in the present would have to think if we want to prevent them, we have to think in the future. And I'm just saying like, we're not super well designed for thinking into the future. Not, not wired that way. No. I mean, one of the things is we, we, we tend to, one of the things that served us really well as human beings is our native optimism. Um, and there's a thing called an optimism bias, which sort of says like, yeah, I know there might be an earthquake. I think I'll survive it. That, that every, you know, it's, it's sort of like everybody thinks they're like, it's going to be rough on everybody else, but I think I'll be okay. Well, this is why people don't leave hurricane zones when there's an evacuation. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are going to do better than everybody else at boarding up the window. Oh, no, I know how to do this. I got it. And 
here's the good news. Because I, in thinking about this, like realizing like that some people are worried about death of the human race or death of themselves. And other people are worried about suffering of the human race or suffering of themselves. So I did some research and I have a wonderful, I have a wonderful recommendation if, if, for you, Josie, if you want to really understand why people struggle to face up to these risks. Okay. And, and, and there are two podcasts that I found. And the first one is called The Big One. And it's a 10 episode podcast that was just released by KPCC in Los Angeles, the radio station. And it's all about, it starts out with the dramatization of like, the guy's like, you're, you're taking the train, you're in Union Station, and all of a sudden, and he sort of takes you through the dramatization of like what, will, what it would be like to be in a massive earthquake in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then interspersed with the drama, there's all the science. And they're talking to all these social scientists and they, they, they really take you through what an earthquake would be like, how it would affect, they, they talk to buildings people and what would happen buildings, healthcare people, what would happen healthcare. And, and at the end of each episode, there's a wonderful segment on how you can prepare. And, you know, the kind of thing like having water, um, not just in your home, but also in your car, never letting your car go below a half a tank because when the earthquake comes, you won't be able to get gas, but you'll need to get around. Like really basic stuff. I love that. Okay. So it's this great podcast about preparing for the big one and understanding like what the actual economic and social impact of the big one will be on not just California, but the rest of the world. And there's all the science that sort of says like, it is incontrovertibly going to happen. This isn't like a, a, a maybe. Um, and this isn't one that even the techno optimists say, I think we can avoid. It's going to happen and it's going to be big. And yet, you know, and the obvious question that gets raised is, so if we know, if we know it's going to happen, they go to Gil Garcetti, they, they go to Eric Garcetti, the mayor of uh, Los Angeles say, you know, how prepared are you? He's like, we're more prepared than any other city in the country. And then he possibly says, which is to say not prepared at all. <laughs> uh-huh. And in episode eight, which is entitled The Lessons, they, they talk with all these social scientists and they answer the question that Josie's asking, why don't people prepare for really difficult experiences that are almost certain to come to them. And they get into the psychology of it and they get into the messages. One, I mean, one of the most fascinating things, they talked to people who had lived through these earthquakes and they said, the funny thing is when the earthquake actually happens instantaneously, people's perspective changes. And Absolutely. And, 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 and then long after the earthquake is done, their sense that they are special or their sense that their optimism bias, this is, I'll probably be okay, gets wiped out. And all of a sudden they're like, tell me how to prepare. Like, I'm no, I'm no, I'm not, I'm not special. So I'm going to need, I'm going to need water. I'm not special. I probably won't be in the right place. And all of a sudden, when people have been through an experience where they've lost control or where circumstances have taken over their, their, their world, then 
they're open to learning in a way that most of Los Angeles right now is not open to learning. You know, when, when you when you talk about when you when you make this point, I keep sort of thinking of us all like little children who need you know who need very sort of visceral lessons on things uh, before they'll really understand danger or risk. Yeah. Okay, Dad. Then then I'll tell you that's that's brilliant because look, one of the interesting things that came up was that like little children, people in terms of preparing or trying to prevent a catastrophe do not respond well to fear. So if you say to them, if you do this, if you don't do this, this is this bad thing's going to happen and this bad thing's going to happen, people don't respond to it. It's sort of like when you say to people like, listen, if you keep smoking, you're going to get lung cancer and die. Very, right. very ineffective. No, it doesn't work. But what people do respond to, it turns out, are rewards. So if you say to the smoker, listen, if you give up smoking, your food will taste better immediately. Or if you give up smoking, you're going to have more energy. Or people that don't smoke get better jobs and better insurance rates. People go like, oh, yeah, I, I want that. Yeah, yeah. So people so are there are, versions of are, are there versions of rewards for the problem we're talking about? For, for like an earthquake in Los Angeles? Uh, well, I guess or for climate or, or change, for climate change. Well, I, I think that there are. But 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 I think that that's one of the real challenges for Josie and for anyone who cares is if in order to mitigate the consequences of our bad behavior or to prevent the catastrophe or just to make it less bad, it's going to require collective action, right? Governments and stuff like that. Then you've got to create a movement. You got, and, and, and you've got to create a movement of people that are concerned about it and that are willing to do stuff about it. And you say, well, how would you create that movement? And the answer is not to get out there and go like, we're all going to die if we don't organize. That will, that will move nobody. So, so it's, it's interesting, you know, and you say, well, is there a precedent for this? And I, I would say that there is in the environmental movement. I mean, Rachel Carson's publishes Silent Spring in 1962. Nobody's, a, nobody's thinking about um, DDT. Nobody's thinking about runoff or the consequences of fertilizer or agro farming. And yet, you know, in, in, in the in the 20 or 30 years right after that book came out, a whole movement of environmentalism took place. And now they teach about all those things in elementary schools. Yeah. And that's part, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and politicians have to have to sort of appease the environmental lobby. And it's a part of our everyday conversation. And so there is such a thing as bringing a um, bringing an issue to the forefront. But again, I think that probably the environmental movement is at its strongest where it is able to sell you a story that says, if you, if you do this, you will gain social acceptance. If you do this, you'll live in a more beautiful community. If you do this, you'll be able to enjoy the beach more. Um, that it sells rewards rather than if you don't do this, your child will have birth defects. I got you. Yeah. So, so the first thing I want to offer up to, to Josie is like, Hey, you want to know why your science teacher puts that stuff out there and then quickly pivots to the present? Because that's what he and all of us are, are, are generally wired to do. And, uh, and, 
And I think that one thing that that you can do, Josie, is you can learn to reframe your fears about the future and try to try to think in terms of what are the things that we can offer people in the present? Um, what are the what are the more immediate benefits that we can offer people for responsible behavior that 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 in a sense, how can we how can we have a better narrative as we try to get people engaged in the conversation? Um, one of the other things was they said, you know, that the people that try to get you worry, warn, warn you or get you worried about these things, that they oftentimes have no sense of humor. And so that not, not only do you have to offer some words, but you have to have some sense of humor about the whole thing. Because if, if the conversation is too bleak for too long, people just don't stay in it. Because you go like, but it's important for your future. And they're like, yeah, but you're, 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 you're screwing with my present. And, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm much more motivated by my present. So, I mean, I mean, when you think about that future presence thing, I mean, think about it, even just you as an individual, that in a sense, like we all know we should save money for, you know, like in a sense, if we save money, we're being nice to our future self by, by, in a sense, asking our present self to make a sacrifice. And the truth of the matter is, our, is that we're not really very, we, we're not very good to our future selves a lot of the time because we're more concerned about our present self. Well, if, if I'm not even concerned about future Bart, and now you're asking me to make sacrifice on the behalf of future Bart's grandchild or, or, or great-grandchild or people I've never even met, like seven generations down, with due respect to my Native American friends and you know, the, the huge conglomerates that have now created a brand called Seventh Generation to, to trade on their cultural heritage. I don't really think anybody genuinely thinks that far in the, in the future. Right. So, okay. So, so, so that's, that's the one podcast I've got for you is the big one. And it's a fascinating podcast, particularly if you're in LA, it's an indispensable podcast. No, I'll definitely download, um, download that. But, but episode eight is going to be particularly right on this subject. And then the other one is on the existential risk, there's a podcast out called <laughs> kind of on the, on the nose, the end of the world. And the end of the world podcast is made by this guy named Josh Clark. It's called the end of the world with Josh Clark. And it starts out talking about Fermi's paradox, which I think we might've talked about a little bit last time we talked about this. Uh-huh. Do, do you know, like, have you heard of Fermi's Paradox? I have. I'm trying to rack my brain now as to whether we talked about that before. Okay, so Fermi was this scientist at the Los Alamos nuclear plant. I mean, he's a big guy in the nuclear, uh, in nuclear science history. But at one point over lunch, he and a bunch of the other people are talking about the mathematical almost certainty that there has got to be intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. They're just like, there are billions of galaxies, each of them having billions of stars. You know, a certain percentage of those stars have planets. A certain percentage of those planets are kind of in the Goldilocks zone where the conditions for life could exist. And they're just saying like, you know, mathematically speaking, it, it seems almost astronomically impossible that intelligent life hasn't developed somewhere else. So all these scientists are knocking this around and Fermi's like, okay, so then if, if there's all these civilizations out there, why haven't we heard from anybody? Right. Where are they? Yeah. And, uh, 
and and scientists have sort of been fascinated by that for years. Like, yeah, wh why haven't we heard? And they're like, we've been listening since you know nineteen eighty something when they started that SETI thing, the search mm -hmm. for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, and they've got you know listening devices out there in the desert, and they're trying to pick up all kinds of waves. And we've been sending out messages for more than a hundred years radio waves and TV stations and things like that, and, and even spacecraft and all that stuff. So like, we're sending out messages, why hasn't anybody reached us and why, or why haven't we reached anybody? And uh, in this podcast, The End of the World, they start out with that. And kind of the conclusion that they come to is, is, well, look at us. We've just now, in the, in the billions of years since the founding of the universe, 13 billion years, we've, we've been able to communicate with anyone else for about 150 years, which is like a, a millisecond along that time. It's nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, and you say, yeah, but we're going to probably be able to communicate for, you know, a billion years in the future. Some of those other civilizations could have developed a long time ago. And, and he says, yeah, are we going to be able to develop in the future? Or are we going to, in our technological adolescence, destroy ourselves a scant 150 years after we got able to project ourselves even a little bit off our own planet? And so one answer to Fermi's paradox is, is that at just the moment when a society becomes technologically sophisticated enough to communicate beyond its planet, it wipes itself out. It comes up, it, it develops technology at one level and then AI emerges and wipes it out. Or it does, it, it develops medical care and, it, and, and viruses and, and uh, super viruses and things like that in laboratories so they can study stuff. And then one of those viruses gets out and it wipes everybody out. And so one or, answer- or, or, or it adjusts its own genome too much and- yeah, <laughs> creates calamity. Exactly, it does some it, like it, it, it does a huge science experiment on itself and fails. Yeah, <laughs> and that mm -hmm. what happens is is that that we're now at a point where our ability to destroy ourselves and our ability to restrain ourselves are out of whack. Like we have more ability to destroy than we have ability to restrain. That we're at, like like we're heating up our atmosphere, as Josie pointed out, at this terrible rate, and you're like, yeah, but you, you know, once you see it's a problem, you, you you know, you just you just curtail your carbon emissions and you curtail your you know and you limit your population, and you're like, yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can't we can't do a lot of things that we you know we we can't figure out all sorts of things that we ought to be able to figure out, not because we lack the technological sophistication, but because we lack the political will. Right. Um, and at that point, you know, you get into this old science experiment called the, or science article called the tragedy of the commons. Have you ever heard of the tragedy of the commons? I have. Yeah. And the idea is, is that, it, you know, it, it was written in 1962 and it, it actually like, it, it, it sort of focused on, sheep farmers that had kind of a collective in the center of their living situation. They had a pasture that they all shared and the the commons would work well if everybody had enough sheep to take care of themselves, but not too many sheep. But if somebody overgrazed their sheep, they would benefit 
but everybody else would suffer. And so the idea is like, well, I'll trust you not to take too much if you trust me not to take too much. And they're like, it always breaks down. Interesting. Somebody either does take advantage and then the other people are like, well, crap, if they take advantage, we're going to starve. So like, now we better get ours and everybody tries to get theirs or nobody's cheating, but somebody thinks somebody's going to cheat. And because they think somebody might cheat, they're like, well, I better get mine first. That's interesting. It's, it's like banking, you know, like if you, if everybody goes to the bank at the same time to withdraw, the bank literally doesn't have enough money to give everybody back their money. Oh yeah. Like remember that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey's the banker and everybody comes to the bank wanting their money and he knows he doesn't have enough to give it to them. Yes. And, and, and then, you know, they're like, come on, like, remember we're a community. And like, that's the tragedy of the commons. Like, and, right. and, and, and in George Bailey's world of, you know, what was it? Hooverville? Like mm -hmm. people are great and they, and they, and they do the right thing. But in, in that tragedy of the commons thing, there's this concept of free riders, which are people that take advantage of the common resource without replenishing it. Mm -hmm. But it's noted that even in the animal kingdom, animals punish free riders. Like everybody hates a free rider, somebody who's going to mm -hmm. benefit from the social situation, but they're not going to sacrifice anything to make it happen. Right. And right. in a weird way, our relationship with our future ancestors, they are by definition free riders. Like we would have to make sacrifices today to benefit them in the future. So like we have these common resources that we share with our future, our the future of humanity, but all the sacrifice would have to come on our part and all the benefits going to come to them. Right. And we're not wired to do that. No. So in, in this uh, end of the world podcast, again, in episode eight, there is, he, he does a whole thing about the psychology of facing existential risks. And the kind of movement building and the kind of conversational shifts that would have to happen in order for us as a species to make it through the great sifting, the great sorting out, the, 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 the kind of the narrow band of can we get our shit together before we destroy ourselves? And what he points out is, is that no generation in the past faced an existential risk. They faced lots of, hey, if we do this bad... Depression will happen, hard times will happen, but at no point was humanity able to actually destroy all life on the planet or all human life on the planet. And he's like, and in the future, it's the same way. The future generations, once we figure out how to restrain ourselves and once we develop these skills and abilities, We'll we'll be able to tech our way out of all the pro you know, all the problems that 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 we'll encounter. He's he's he, what, what, what this podcast kind of points out is that we are in 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 these few generations that we're a part of. We're the we're the ones upon whom the whole future depends. And once we assure that future, for instance, space travel happens. Humans colonize planets all over the place. Well, if any one of those planets messes up. There'll be humans in other places. We'll be all right. 
life will go on. But if we screw up in these in this next 20 or 30 years, we could we could not only wipe ourselves out, but we could wipe out the trillions of people that would have come after us if we had made it. Yeah. You know, if there were three other planets that had human populations, uh, I I wonder to what extent I would be aware of or 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 care as an individual on one of them about about the populations on the other, or especially a future population on another. Well, I mean, you, you know, know I, how much you care about the famine in Ethiopia, right? Exactly. That's what. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like. It's an interesting news story. And then I wonder like who won the, who won the, the 76ers game. Right. The other, so even other countries, we have a hard time sort of extending that, extending that feeling. Yeah. And so it's interesting. So, so there is this sense in which Josie asked the question, why isn't everyone focused on this? And the answer is psychologically, we're not, we're not really wired to focus on this. And that's led us to have a kind of a whole political system that is very short-term oriented. And we tend to think in the short term, particularly here in the United States, where we have a political system that change, where we change regimes on a very regular basis. And what's interesting is, is that our constitution was designed in an era when we weren't facing existential risks. And so... The idea of switching out your politicians fast seemed like a great way to mitigate against human corruption. But what we didn't realize is, is that we might get to a place where an administration would have to put us on an austerity plan that would last 30 or 40 or 50 years. And that a government of the people, by the people and for the people that's represented, that's representatives change every two years, that that government wouldn't be up for the task. Because that government would be attuned to present our present selves and to appeasing our present selves when it was our future selves that we needed to be looking out for. But our future selves Man, don't you know, our future selves don't vote. Yeah. Man, you know, it's weird. I, I like I consider myself to be a fairly thoughtful person about these things. I had legitimately never thought about this issue in those terms before i'd never like put those pieces together like oh our entire system is wired to prioritize present concerns like very very short-term concerns with the assumption that if you take care of the present the future will take care of itself because the future will be a lot like the present right but but think about it even after the american revolution how much did life in Philadelphia change after that regime change? Like, how much did the Taylor's life change? Did where he got his water change? Mm -hmm. You know, did, 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 did how much food was accessible to him change? Did medical care change? You know, the changes that happened after a regime change in 1776 are minuscule compared to the changes that have happened in everyday life since I was born. Right. No regime change, just technological change. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and I guess on, on some level, you know, 40 or 50 regime changes. 
if you count midterm elections, you know, that there's been all sorts of regime changes. And so the problem is, is the technology is advancing so quickly, but our political system is designed to manage slower growth. And so is our educational system, by the way, Josie. So your teacher, you know, bless his or her heart, isn't, you, you, th that teacher's sensibilities were developed in an age before artificial intelligence was even a concept. And so even though he or she may be able to learn the concept, it's not in his or her bones the way it is in yours. You know, my, my, my children often say that I am a digital immigrant and they're digital natives because they grew up with the stuff. Mm -hmm. And the people that are making our decisions right now and that are teaching in our classrooms, many of them are not native to the situation in which we find ourselves in the way that, in the way that Josie is. Okay. So like, look, Peter Montoya is probably going to call me again <laughs> and say, the last time you gave us no hope, this time you're offering no hope. You're just describing. And, and what I would say is, hey, I'm, first of all, I'm trying to answer the, the, the question. Now, now, Josie's secondary question is, how do we cope? And, you know, I would say refer to every other episode of this podcast yes. if you want to know how we cope. Right. No, that that's that's good because it's it, it's literally what we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's all about forming a certain kind of relationship and creating a certain kind of relationship between ourselves and the natural world around us and our own existence that will hope Cre creating certain communities. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about that. And and hopefully creating communities in which conversations can happen that will enable the movement that needs to happen in our world to emerge more quickly and in time to mature our conversation and mature our political system and mature our personal habits, including reproductive habits, to the place where we can face up to both the immediate risk of experiential suffering, which is very real, the earthquake level stuff, and the existential risk which I would say is just as real at this moment. So those are two amazingly good podcasts, really good podcasts, the big one and the end of the world. And I want to, I can't recommend them more highly. I, I especially want to recommend their first episodes and their eighth episodes. Cause coincidentally in both cases, those are, those are episodes that'll get you, get you thinking in a really, in a really, Profoundly, I think, useful way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So there, I'm, I'm downloading. I, okay. I think we did better this time. I'm not going to comment because I thought we did all right the last time, but uh, I hope that our, our listeners uh, think that that was a better answer. And, I, and you're right. You know, when you got through some of that stuff, I was thinking, okay, yeah, there's some stuff here that we, that, that, that's really good, much better than before. Good. I hope so. All right. All right, sir. Thank you again. All right, we'll catch you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. 
go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. You could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live all you ever wanted. You could